Well, good afternoon, everybody. So today we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of John. Now, we've spent the last few months obviously going through um, this, this book, and we've arrived at the final section to chapter four of, um, of this particular gospel. And in this section that we're going to be reading, there's going to be a number of things that we're going to be looking upon. Um, things that I certainly do believe, especially in our time, in our day and age, is important for us to consider. One is um, the necessity to have a focus upon the word as opposed to signs, things that were a stumbling block to the Jews. And also um, a reminder that what's ultimate is the truth. And although many times truth may be coming from the mouth of an imperfect being that does not negate truth if it is coming from the word of God. So um, I hope and I pray as we go through this section that you will be edified and enlightened by what the apostle writes. So with that being said, let's go ahead and let's first begin by going to God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you have allowed for us to come now and examine your most holy word. God, I am certainly an, an, um, an unworthy person to be standing here, Lord, preaching to you, knowing my own frailties, knowing my own shortcomings, O oh God. But Lord, I ask, in spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my frailties, God, that you might use me in such a way um, as to explain accurately and clearly what your word teaches. And Lord, I pray that you may open the eyes and ears of those who are listening, Lord, and that you may grant them humble hearts to receive this truth, Lord, so long as I speak what is true. And God, may this be a time and moment in which we look to your word, and we are edified by it. So God, please be with me, certainly, oh Lord, and be with the congregation as we now dive into your holy word and are taught from it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So again, the section that we're going to be looking at today is found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, and we're going to be starting in verse 43, and we're going to be going all the way to the end of this chapter. Now, you know, as we continue looking through this gospel, you know, one of the areas that we're going to see more and more is the, the continued rejection of Christ by the Jews in spite of all the signs and miracles that these people see. I mean, we're going to see he's going to be healing paralytics. He's going to be, chapter five, he's going to be healing a blind man, even raising people from the dead. But yet in spite of all this, you know what we continue to see? is stubbornness from many of the Jewish leaders, and um, which eventually culminates in Jesus being arrested and crucified. Now, obviously, we know that the miracles that Jesus performed, they did serve a purpose. The reason that he performed these miracles was to attest to the fact that he was the promised Messiah. Unfortunately for the Jews, those signs became their stumbling block. 
The passage that we're going to be looking at today actually provides us with an ideal end result of how a person should respond when they witness miracles by Jesus. But however, for many, the signs that he did, rather than bring about repentance and faith in Christ, led to many either questioning him, looking at him as a genie, or, um, or a glorified musician for that matter. While you know, these signs were certainly important for the conversion of many people, they were not the main means by which Christ drew people to himself. His preaching was. His words were far more impactful than the signs that he did. In fact, as we will see today, his word is what we as believers need. We need to focus on rather than the signs, the miracles. Now, the key passage in this entire gospel, remember, um, is John 20, verse 31, which the apostle says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. These things are written. Miracles, the signs, although they are awe-inspiring, have the tendency, as we will see here and in throughout, they have the tendency to draw many people who like the spectacle, but not the gospel. If those people who are drawn by miracles do not repent of their sins and trust in the Messiah, then those same miracles that they witness will turn out to be what condemns them. I'm reminded of what Jesus himself says. I believe it's in Matthew chapter 15, where he pronounces woes to cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, saying, if these signs that I did, these miracles that I did here were performed in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented with dust and ashes. So with that being said, we're going to see here in this section the importance of not signs, not wonders, but the word preached. Now, with that being said, let's... Go ahead and let's read verses 43. Actually, you know what? Let's actually start a little bit earlier just to provide some context. Let's, let's start in verse 39. And we're going to read all the way to the end of 54. So again, John chapter 4. We'll start in verse 39. And you'll see why in just a minute. So starting in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all these things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two more days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. After two, the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all that the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you, you simply will not believe. 
the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So, this section, let's, let's look at 43 to 45. This section here starts with Jesus leaving from the region of Samaria, where, if you recall, he had a very productive outreach. If you remember, while he was in Samaria, he's talking with this woman by Jacob's well. And as a result of his conversation that led to her believing in Jesus as the Messiah, and not just her, but many other people believed in the Messiah. Now, what's fascinating when you read this account of the Samaritans is not what was said here, but actually what wasn't stated in this section. We don't see any indication of Jesus performing any signs or miracles with the Samaritans. Jesus goes into a non-Jewish region, and he does not need to perform any grand miracles in order for them to believe in him. Now, to be fair, he did demonstrate to the woman, obviously, that he was more than just a mere man by um, um, declaring to, to him, to her, things that no one else would have known. But he did not heal anyone. He did not cast out any demons. He did not restore blind people's sight. He did not perform any of those miracles that we see him performing for the Jews. He simply preached a word, and that was sufficient for them. Now, how different is that from the Jews? You would think that the people who saw the great signs and the great miracles would be the ones readily to believe in him. At least that's what we would want to tell ourselves, right? I mean, we assume so often that, you know, all that has to happen, you know, for people to believe in God is for God to do something miraculous, I have heard many atheists even make the claim that, you know what, if God just did something, did some grand miracle, some grand sign, yeah, I'll believe. If God will take this chair and just cause it to levitate and spin around, yeah, I'll believe. And the sad reality is that while, again, those miracles do attest to the fact of Jesus being the Messiah and should cause people to repent, it should cause people to trust in him. The reality of the fact is that the pride and stubbornness of man causes many people to rationalize and explain away those signs rather than accept and submit to God. I mean, think about it. If signs and wonders and miracles were things that would 100% of the time bring people to faith, then the Egyptians during the time of Moses would have been the most faithful people because they witnessed God demonstrating 10 monumental plagues. But yet we read nowhere that these people that saw these 10 plagues that could not be replicated by any of their magicians, we see none of them submit and trust in God. Matter of fact, even the Israelites who were the benefactors 
of the signs and wonders. Not that long after they leave from Egypt, set up a golden calf to worship God. I love what St. Augustine writes in a sermon that he gave. He wrote this. In short, those Jews saw the Lord as he walked on the earth and worked miracles. They saw him giving sight to the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, deaf, loosing the tongues of the dumb or mute in modern terminology, bracing up the limbs of the paralytics, walking on the sea, commanding the winds and waves, raising the dead. They saw him working such great signs and after all that, scarcely a few believed. So signs and miracles by itself will not bring about what is ultimately needed in order for people to come to faith. That is the gospel preached. Romans 1.16 says it's so clear. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. The Samaritans were converted at the preaching of the gospel, not the performing of miracles. And as we go on reading the rest of chapter four, I don't want for us to overlook the means by which the Samaritans believed, because that is the primary way that people come to faith. The grand miracles that we saw Jesus perform, and we will continue to see him perform throughout the gospel, they weren't an end to itself. They were a means to an end. They attested to him being more than a person, being the Messiah, so that people would humble themselves and listen to the message and believe in him. And if we think that the miracles that Jesus does were an end to itself, then we will fall into the same trap of unbelief that the Jews found themselves in. Turning Jesus not into a Messiah, but a glorified genie. Hey, heal me. I'm sick. Heal me. Give me food. And those miracles will end up being their stumbling blocks. I love what Matthew Henry puts here. He, he says, those that admire miracles only and despise prophesying or preaching rank themselves as unbelievers. And we may not see it in this passage here, but when we get to John chapter six, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. When these people, they see God provides for them food, feeding 5,000 over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Those same people that saw this miracle, as soon as God starts to preach hard truth, abandon him. So, going back here, the Samaritans, without seeing a miracle, believed in the message that Jesus preached to them. Now, after Jesus spends two days there, we read in, verses, in verse 43 that he goes up into the land of Galilee. Now, you know, when, when we read 43 to 45, at first glance, it appears as though we may have a contradiction because the text says that Jesus goes into Galilee for a prophet is without honor in his country. But then the following verse said that the Galileans did receive him, which doesn't make sense. I mean, did the Galileans favorably receive him or did they not? Now, you have some commentators when they look at this passage that think that in verse 45, the apostle was speaking sarcastically when stating that the Galileans received Jesus. Other commentators think that verse 44 is referring to Jerusalem. In my opinion, I think that if, we're, if we want to gain a proper understanding of what is meant in this section, this is where applying what theologians call the analogy of faith becomes important. Now, 
what do I mean when I say the analogy of faith? It's very, very simple. Scripture interprets scripture. You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. You don't take outside thoughts or ideas and try to impose it on the Bible to create meaning. Rather, you allow the word of God to interpret itself. So in doing that, how would that principle apply here for us to understand, okay, what is he talking about? A prophet is without honor in this country. Who is he talking about? What people is he talking about? Well, if you know your Bibles, then you would know that this is not the only area in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, where this is said. We find Jesus saying the same thing in Matthew 13, verse 57, in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 24. Now, for the purposes of this, we're not going to look at all of those chapters, but we will look at um, Luke chapter 4. And we'll read from verses 16 through 24, as I believe it provides the most clarity for us to understand what um, is being stated here. So again, um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verses 16, and we're going to read through verse 24. We read this. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So when we look at this text, Two things that we find that I think are important that helps us to understand John 4. One, it states where Jesus was raised, which is Nazareth. Two, it tells us where he made this comment in Nazareth. So Nazareth is his hometown and is the place where Jesus says he is regarded without honor. So now this brings us back to John chapter 4, verse 44. Now, when we look at John 4, verse 44, the text doesn't say anything about Nazareth. So why would we assume that Nazareth is the place in reference here? Well, when you study a map of the Palestinian region during the time of Jesus, what you see first and foremost is that the land known as Galilee was not a city, but rather a, a region. Think of it almost kind of like a country. And within that country of Galilee, there were numerous cities. One such city is the city of Cana, which in verse 46, we're going to read that Jesus visits. Another such city is Nazareth, which is located just south of Cana. Also, on top of that, you will see that the land of Samaria is just south of Galilee. So, if Jesus, if we take all of that, if Jesus was leaving from Samaria, and headed to the city of Cana, as we read in verse 46, then he would have had to have been heading north, and he would have had to have either crossed through Nazareth or go around Nazareth. 
So I think a proper, a proper inference to make when reading this passage is that Jesus, rather than spending time in Nazareth, which, think, if this is your hometown, you would imagine if you're passing by, going someplace, and you're passing by where you're from, you're probably going to want to go where you're from to catch up with family, parents if they're there, whatever the case may be. He doesn't do that, but rather goes go straight to Cana. And the reason why is because of what we read here in verse 44, because a prophet has no honor in his country. So I think in light of all of this, I think it's safe to, to say that verse 44, when it says that, you know, um, a prophet has no honor in his country, is referring to Nazareth itself. Now, with that cleared up, I, I do want to focus in on what he says in verse 44. A prophet has no honor in his country. Sadly for, for Jesus, those people in his hometown of Nazareth were some of the most non-receptive people to his ministry. He preached to them, as we saw in Luke chapter 4. While he did not do many mighty miracles, Mark chapter 6 tells us that he did heal a few people while in Nazareth. However, their unbelief was strong. Well, why is that? Why in the place where he's from, where people know him, why were they so unreceptive? To hearing him. No. Listen to what some of them stated in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So basically, to put it in kind of common vernacular, you know, they were like, well, hold on. We, we know this guy. We, we know Jesus. Who is he trying to, to fool, acting like he's someone special? I went to school with this guy. He's not some genius. You know, there's that old saying. I'm sure some, a lot of you have heard it. Familiarity breeds contempt. For the people of Nazareth, because they knew him and his family, it was difficult for them to see Jesus any more than you know, someone that they grew up around. They could probably, in, in, in a town, a small town of Nazareth, they probably knew his family, may even have known of maybe issues that, that may have aroused within the family itself, rumors that may have spread. I could certainly imagine, you know, the rumor mill, which, you know, isn't just confined to the times like today, but even back then, could, I could certainly imagine people whispering, hey, I mean, you do realize that uh, Joseph is not Jesus' daddy, right? I could hear those rumors taking place during those times. I could hear those rumors saying, you know, Mary was pregnant when she, was, when she got married to Joseph. That's not that spiritual. I could hear people looking at Jesus, remembering him growing up again, not knowing him, but again, how rumors go, saying, you know, Jesus is always trying to preach at somebody. I remember when he was 12 years old, you know, my neighbor told me when he was 12 years old and they went to Jerusalem for Passover. Did you know that he left his parents behind and he went into the temple and started to preach at grown people as though he knew better than them? And then you, and I heard that when his parents came and got him, you know what he told Joseph? He told Joseph, hey, hold up. I'm doing the business of my real daddy, not you. So I can hear these rumors taking place. And as a result, it makes it very difficult for people to want to listen to a guy 
that they grew up around, that they may not look upon so highly. So for the people of Nazareth, it wasn't necessarily the miracles, actually, that was the stumbling block for them. It was actually the baggage. You know, from the looks of it, what, when, what they thought they knew about Jesus from, him grow, from growing up with him kept them from realizing who Jesus truly was. And, you know, I, I bring all of this up because, you know, this is a scenario that, while, listen, none of us standing behind these pulpits can ever claim to be Jesus. This is certainly a stumbling block for many people today when it comes to knowing someone in the ministry. The more you know someone intimately, the more it can be a stumbling block for you seeing how they're being used by God. You know, it's one thing to watch someone from afar, hear their messages from afar. You know nothing about their background, nothing about their lives, and admire what they're doing. It's another thing to watch someone from up close, hear their messages, and receive what, try to receive what they're saying when you know their flaws, when you know their imperfections. See, that person that you're hearing from afar, you know, again, nothing about their personal life, so you're not carrying any baggage when you're listening to them. You have no preconceived notions. Take, for example, people that we respect and admire, people like John MacArthur, the late R.C. Sproul, Vody Bauckham, Paul Washer. We don't know, or I'm assuming none of you know these people intimately. I know I don't. So, you know, when we listen to them, we, we're not thinking about, well, I saw when Vody was talking bad about his wife, you know, behind the scenes or anything like that. Again, not saying that he has since this is recorded, but you know what I mean. There is no baggage that we're carrying. We're just listening and enjoying. However, you do know me. You do know Jason, you do know Enro, you do know Rick. And of course, you knew our late pastor, Dr. T. You've seen our flaws. You've seen our weaknesses. You've seen you know, our areas in which we struggle. Some of you more than others, obviously. Some of you may have even known us prior to our conversion. And you know what? That baggage sometimes can be very difficult to see through and sometimes can end up being a stumbling block for people closest to us when listening to us from behind the pulpit. I love what Matthew Henry and John Gill, what they write here. Let me start first by reading what Matthew Henry says. He writes this. Not that it's universally true because no rule, you know, all rules have exceptions, but it holds for the most part. Joseph, when he began to be a prophet, was most hated by who? His brothers. David was disdained by his brother. Jeremiah was maligned by the man of Anathoth where he lived, Paul, by the, his countrymen, the Jews, and Christ's near kinsmen spoke most slightly of him. Men's pride and envy make them scorn to be instructed by those who were once their schoolfellows and playfellows. People closest to you sometimes can be the hardest people to see through because, again, they know your flaws. John Gill writes this, a prophet or any teacher or preacher, generally speaking, is more esteemed among strangers who have no personal pique nor prejudice against him and who judge of him not by what he has been, but by his present abilities, doctrine, and conduct than among his countrymen who are apt to think meanly of him because familiarity acquainted with him and knew, if not his vices, yet his infirmities and envy him any superior degree of honor to them he attained unto. See, the more you know a preacher or a minister, 
the more that when you hear that what you hear them say can be clouded by what you know about them. Your awareness of a minister's vices or weaknesses can end up being your biggest hurdle from hearing the truths that they are speaking. So if that's the case, well, what's the remedy? Do we go to maybe mega churches to where you're never going to have a relationship with the pastor itself and just listen and not have to worry about baggage? Do we just listen to sermons from sermon audio, whatever the case may be, and not develop any type of closeness with people within the church itself? Is that the solution? Well, obviously not. Certainly could not have been the solution back in the days of Christ where there was no technology. People couldn't go to 5,000 know, people mega churches or anything like that or listen to sermons on, on audio. So what's the solution? What's the remedy? Well, we have to be willing to listen to truth, even if it's coming from an imperfect vessel. Perhaps one of the greatest schemes that, or great schemes that Satan has afflicted our culture with, in particular nowadays, is with this idea that if a person's life does not perfectly line up with every single thing that they speak, then what they speak has to be a lie. It, you know, it's not to get unnecessarily philosophical or anything like that, but it's this whole idea of what's happened with relativism. And since there is no ultimate truth, truth resides in the individual, the person itself. And it's this whole idea, so well, well if truth resides in me and, and me and everybody has their own truths, then what I speak has to be my truth, which is not the case at all. Truth is true because God says it's true. And we have God's truth in his word. We all have the ability to speak truth from the word, but unfortunately, because of the frailties of our flesh, we can be inconsistent. A person's inconsistency is not an excuse to ignore the truth that they are saying. Now, that does not absolve a person from not aiming. They have to aim to be consistent with what they say and how they live. I am by no means saying, well, then eh, it's excusable if a guy wants to be inconsistent. No, all ministers must strive to always practice what they preach. All people have to strive to practice what they preach. Ministers must not only speak the truth, but they have to live out the truth. Ministers must strive to live a life that matches the truths that they preach from behind the pulpit. And actually, in this case, um, it is important because obviously the more inconsistent, unfortunately, a minister is, the more of a hindrance it can be to people. I mean, First Timothy chapter 3 tells us that ministers must be blameless, a one-woman man, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy, not quarrelsome, not covetous, must be gentle, must be able to rule his household well. So there must be standards for those who are called to the ministry. All that being said, the sad reality is that every minister will fail at perfectly practicing every single point that they preach if they're truly preaching the truth. Because if you're committed to preaching the truth, you know what you're going to find out? You're not living consistently with the truth that are contained in the scriptures itself. And believe me, God will deal with any minister whose life does not line up with the truth that he speaks, which is a very terrifying thing, to say the least. But we have to deal with the truth that the minister speaks, regardless of whether we like 
who said that truth. We need to be committed to the truth itself and not allow, like with the Nazarenes here, their past preconceived thoughts in regards to Jesus keep them from actually hearing the truth. They missed out on the gospel because they were more concerned about, well, this is Jesus from the block. This is, you know, this used to be my neighbor. It's, I'm not going to listen to this guy. So we cannot think in this way. So in light of that, Jesus doesn't go to, um, to, to Nazareth in this um, setting here, but rather he passes through Nazareth and goes up to the city of Cana. And when he arrives at Cana, so we read in verses 46 and 47 that there, a person from another region, Capernaum, which is not that far from, um, from Cana, hears that Jesus is, is there. And this man, this royal official, has a son who is ill, who's sick, who's near death. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to go to Cana and I'm going to ask Jesus to come, come up and heal my son who's dying. Now, the, the text does not go into details in regards to how much this royal official knew about Jesus' ministry. But one thing he did know was that Jesus could at the very least heal his son. So now we can infer that this official was somewhat desperate because of the state of his son. I mean, we see, and if you read in verse 47, it says that he went to Jesus and he was imploring him or begging for Jesus to come. Now, there have been, you know, theories in regards to who exactly was this royal official. And most people that I've read have posited that he was probably just some official working under um, Herod Antipas, who would have been the ruler of Galilee at that point in time. Now, whatever official role or title that he had, if he was indeed a royal official, I mean, think about it. It's probably safe to assume that he probably would have had access to, you know, some of the best physicians in the land, more than likely. But whatever resources he had could not keep his son from growing more and more sick. So upon hearing that Jesus was not that far from him, he wants to go and meet him and begs Jesus to come and save his son from death. So he comes, he goes and meets with Jesus and asks Jesus, God, please just come heal my son. And it's interesting what, how Jesus responds. Not the way I'm sure that he would have expected for Jesus to respond. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, I'm reading from New American Standard, um, a translation which I think is um, probably one of the more accurate um, translations. But one thing I, I certainly will say, and this is where I guess I will give a slight nod um, to the King James in regards to certain words. So it's hard to see when you read in verse 47 whether or not the word you in this in, um, instance is plural you or, or singular you. And this is where that old English helps. Because if you know your old English, you know that the plural of you is ye. So when Jesus is saying this, he's not actually just talking directly to, he is talking directly to, um, to the royal official, but he's not just, the, what he's saying is, wasn't just intended actually for the royal official, but for everyone who was there, the Galileans. Basically, he was saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all, you simply will not believe. See, unlike the Samaritans earlier in chapter four, the mere, where the mere hearing or the mere hearing of the preaching was not enough for the Jews to believe in Jesus. 
They had become so dependent on miracles and signs that simple preaching would not do anything to cause them to embrace the Messiah. While, spoiler alert, Jesus does heal the royal official son, as we will read momentarily, it is hard to ignore Jesus' response to the Galileans. Jesus spent time in a region that the Jews would have considered Gentile in Samaria and only had to preach the word to them for them to believe. However, in a region that, think about it, they had the privilege of having the covenants, the laws, the ordinances, the priesthood. They were of the lineage. They needed signs. The unbelief of many of them was deep. I mean, to bring it into kind of modern modern day, just understanding, this would be akin to a person who grew up in the church and not only grew up in the church, but then they saw a lot of good things take place in the church. They see people come to Christ. They see mighty works happening, but then them growing up in the church and seeing all the good things that take place in the church, they're the ones that continue to claim, well, I, I need some more signs. I need God to do something more in order for me to finally believe. You know, at some point, the reality has to set in that the only thing hindering the individual is not the need for more proofs or for more signs, but they just have a stubborn and unbelieving heart. As it pertained to the Jews that Jesus was dealing with, it was becoming more and more clear that Jesus was dealing with a level of stubbornness that not even the greatest signs was going to move. As Christians, us, people who claim to believe the gospel, in spite of the fact that none of us have witnessed any of the miracles that Jesus did personally, we must take care to ensure that we don't have that level of unbelief residing in our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12, the apostle writes this, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They saw the miracles. They saw the signs. They witnessed the great and wondrous acts of God. A fire by night leading them in the wilderness. A cloud, a pillar of cloud leading them. They see these things. They see Moses coming down, shining, glowing, because he was literally at the presence of God. These were the people that did not believe. They fell because of unbelief. The signs did not help them at all. Now, don't think for one second when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Don't think for one second that Jesus is implying that the miracles are going to be what makes the Jews believe. No, not at all. He is pointing to their stubbornness and unwillingness to simply believe in the message. I love what John Calvin writes, commenting on this. He writes this. He says, true, indeed, some even of the saints sometimes wish to be confirmed by miracles. That's true. 
that they may not, might not entertain any doubt as to the truth of the promises. And we see how God, by kindly granting their request, showed that he was not offended at them. But Christ describes here far greater wickedness. For the Jews depended so much on miracles that they left no room for the word. And first, it was exceedingly wicked that they were so stupid and carnal as to have no reverence for doctrine unless they have been aroused by miracles. For they must have been well acquainted with the word of God in which they had been educated from their infancy. Secondly, when miracles were performed, they were so far from profiting aright that they remained in the state of stupidity and amazement. Thus, they had no religion, no knowledge of God, no practice of godliness except what consisted in miracles. They were so dependent on the supernatural, on the miracles, on the signs, in order to stay believing. How many of us are like that today? Where we need to experience the supernatural. We need for God to send signs in order for us to believe. And I'm not talking about rivers splitting in two and all of that. Think about it. How many of us, even in our prayers, I know I have been guilty of this. We pray to God. We ask God, God, give us a sign in order for us to for me to know. And that this you will come through in a situation. We can't just rest on the word of God and rest on that. No, we need signs. There has to be more. God's word isn't enough for us. You know, I'm reminded there's an account in um, Judges chapter six, a man, a judge named Gideon. And God tells Gideon that he's going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Now, earlier in this chapter, um, Judges chapter six, God gave Gideon a sign to prove that he was God that was preaching to him or speaking to him. So he, Gideon already knows that God is the one that's talking to him. God already, without, I don't believe Gideon even asked him for this sign. I think God just gave him this sign. So you would think that already seeing a sign from God, Gideon would be encouraged by what God said. Nope. He needed another sign. He says to God, well, uh, God, how about this? Uh, I got this fleece of wool here. I'm going to put it on the threshing floor overnight. And, you know, if there's any dew on the wool and the ground around it is dry, then, you know, I'll believe you. God, you know, condescends to him um, and grants him that sign. But he needed another sign. He's like, you know, I know you just did what I asked. But uh, I still don't know. Could have been a coincidence. So what, how about this? Let me let me let me flip it on you. What about now you keep the wool dry and then you make the dew, the ground around it wet? Then, you know, OK, then I'll believe. Now, God is obviously being God way more patient than I would be. Um, and God, in his patience and kindness, provides getting with that sign. Now. Many people may look at this account and think, all right, well, then it's in the Bible, so we should do that, too. Ask God for signs. Not at all. See, this is a clear indication of the weakness of Gideon's faith. Likewise with us, when you need a constant diet of miracles and signs in order to stay believing, you will always you're going to always have spiritual ups and downs. There's no other way around it. If you need for God to continue to show me a sign and then I'll, I'll still believe. Show me a sign and I continue to believe. Answer this. Show me this dream here. Do this here and then I'll believe. You'll never have that constancy and fervency and firmness of faith 
You'll grow famished. You'll get thirsty. You'll, you'll have your doubts. You will question. You see, those miracles, those signs, like with Gideon, they'll provide us, you know, a temporary relief, but not a permanent one. When you are constantly dieting, however, on the word of God, then like what we read in Psalm chapter one, you will be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields forth its fruit in its season. You will constantly stay nourished. Your faith will remain steadfast. This actually reminds me of what Jesus tells the woman at the well in John chapter four. You know, those who drink of this living water will never thirst. So Jesus says, unless you people see signs, you simply will not believe. O ye of little faith. Now, to the royal official's credit, upon hearing this, a person that, you know, a more prideful person might have heard what Jesus said and just left. But that's not what he does. He asks God again, please come to my house before my child dies. This actually reminds me of the, the Syrophoenician woman um, that we read about in, I want to say, I think it's in um, Luke, who has a child, if I'm not mistaken, that's demon-possessed. And then go, comes to, to Christ, asking for Christ to please heal her daughter. And then at first, Jesus completely ignores her. And then asks again. And then Jesus says, you know, this food is intended, I'm paraphrasing, but this food is intended for, you know, the, the sheep of Israel. You know, we do not give the crumb, you know, feed food to the dogs. And then she humbly says, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. So that, that persistency in coming to God is similar to what we see here. The urgency of the matter forced him to humble himself. Take the rebuke that Jesus was saying, or that was coming from Jesus, and persist again in his request. We can't underestimate the fact that God knows how prideful we can be and will sometimes allow for us to go through immense difficulty in order to humble us before he will answer our prayers. Again, Calvin writes this, he says, now the courtiers or the royal officials in modern language are usually fastidious and haughty and do not willingly submit to being treated with harshness. But it deserves notice that this man, humbled by his necessitous case and by the dread of losing his son, does not burst into a passion or murmur when Christ speaks to him roughly, but passes by that reproof in modest silence. We find the same things in ourselves, for we are astonishingly, astonishingly delicate, impatient, and fretful until subdued by adversities. We are constrained to lay aside our pride and disdain. Yeah, sometimes, you know, God has to put us through a lot of trials and difficulties to humble us before God will answer our prayers. We are a prideful, prideful people. And this official, knowing the fate of his son's life, that the fate of his son's life rests in the hands of Jesus, had to let go of his pride and persist in his request. It was either that or his son died. So likewise, if you are in a very dire situation, don't let pride be the thing that stops you from continuing in prayer. Don't let God's rebuke discourage you from continuing on in prayer. Rather, humble yourselves. 
accept the rebuke and persist. So then that's what we see him doing here. And then he asked, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. You know, it's interesting because see, the royal official asked for Jesus to come, to come to his house and to heal his son. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, instead of answering, he answers the prayer, but not in the exact manner that the official asked. Rather than go to the house as the official asked and what he wanted for, Jesus answers this petition in the manner that he saw fit. Again, the royal official wanted for Jesus to go to Capernaum and see his son and heal his son there. Jesus decided to stay in Cana and heal his son without the official seeing the healing take place. Basically, Jesus acted in such a way that the official had to be content with what Jesus said and apply faith to not walk away discouraged. It was either believe Jesus and be encouraged on the way home or grumble and complain on the way home that Jesus did not do specifically what he asked in the manner that he asked. See, some of us expect for God to answer our request in the exact specifications that we give him. And more times than not, if God decides to answer our prayers favorably, it will always be in a way different than how we ask for. Why? So that we can apply faith. So that we can actually trust in God. And not, to, and not get into the frame of mind that you see far too common, unfortunately, in many camps and sects to where they act as though they can command God and dictate to God what to do. Speak into existence as they like to claim. But see, when you understand that, yeah, God will answer your prayers in the way that he sees fit. His will be done. Not your will, but his will be done. If pride gets in our way, we may overlook the fact that God has answered our prayer. Had this royal official not trusted in what God said, what Jesus said, he may have overlooked the fact when he got home that, wait a minute, my son is actually healed. I mean, he obviously would have noticed that his son was healed, but he would not have attributed it to Christ. The official, again, he had to accept the fact that his son was healed, even though Jesus did not heal him exactly as he requested. And the official also had to believe what Jesus said, again, without seeing what Jesus did. So many of us, we have to see in order to believe. And even that is only a fleeting belief. One that, as I mentioned before, has to constantly be, you know, need to see and be recharged in order to keep believing. It takes true faith to believe without seeing. If you remember the story of Thomas, after Jesus um, rises from um, um, the grave, and then all the disciples, or most of the disciples, they see Jesus. They tell Thomas, hey, hey, Jesus has risen from the dead. We've seen him. And then Thomas was like, I, I don't believe you. I need to see it for myself. I need to see him, see his hands. I need to feel the holes in his hands. And then I'll believe that he's actually risen. And now Jesus 
appears to him. And he says, hey, here's my hands. Feel it. I'm resurrected. And Thomas sees, Thomas believes. And then Jesus said to him in verse 29 of John 20, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. See, the type of faith that we must have is a faith that is founded upon the message of Jesus and not merely the miracles, the signs that he performs. The royal official in this account had to trust in what Jesus said. He had to trust in Jesus' words. Jesus did not give him the opportunity to simply rest on the miracle. See, if Jesus had went to Capernaum and healed um, his son there, so then very well, his faith may have been not on Christ, but just seeing him as a miracle maker. But see, Jesus healing his son in Cana, while his son was about 60 miles away, if I recall, in Capernaum, he had to apply faith. He had to trust that what Jesus said was actually being accomplished. You know, this reminds me, there's, there's an account, and if I can't find it, I'll just paraphrase it, but I believe, and I think I'm just going to paraphrase it because I'm not going to find it I didn't write it here in my notes. There was a centurion ruler who had a son who was sick in the Gospels. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks um, for Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus actually said, you know, what's interesting is the opposite of this here. Um, Jesus says, oh, I'll come and I'll heal your son. And then the centurion ruler was like, no, Jesus, listen, I'm a man of authority. And if I say do this, if I tell a person do this, they'll do that. Jesus, all you need to do is just speak a word. And, and then my son will be healed. And then Jesus looked at him and said, I have not seen, this is a Gentile person. He said, I have not seen faith as strong as this. He didn't have to see Jesus do the work. He just trusted in what Jesus said. And then the centurion's um, son was healed. So, <clears throat> again, Jesus did not give this royal official, the opportunity to rest on the miracle. He had to rest on something much more firm. He had to rest on Christ. He had to rest on his word. Now, what's great is that even though the official had to rest on what Jesus said, that didn't stop Jesus from being gracious and performing the miracle. He does heal his son. And see, because the royal official believed in Jesus' words prior to seeing Jesus act, when Jesus does finally act and heal his son, that moves him towards a full belief in the Messiah as we read in verse 53. He himself believed and his whole household. The end result of this entire encounter that Jesus had with the official is what miracles ought to induce induce a full belief in Christ. However, even for the official, he had to first trust in what Jesus said before witnessing the miracle. So his faith ultimately was not founded upon the sign, but upon Christ. Likewise, the Samaritan woman, it was the word that Jesus spoke that led to faith. Now, for the official, the miracle served as a confirmation of the word that Jesus spoke, but see, it wasn't the catalyst for his faith. So, for us, for us believers, where does our faith rest? 
Is it on the message of Jesus Christ? Or is it on signs and wonders and experiences? Do we hope that we witness some fanciful experience or sign in order to believe? Are we content with just having this boring old word here, which is the power of God for salvation? Are we standing firm on that foundation? Or do we need to constantly be recharged with some sign or experience? Are we ones to where we are like, man, I wish I can have these dreams or these prophecies or all these different things? Or are we content with this here, the word just trusting in this? Do we find ourselves in a state like the Nazarenes, where we don't believe on account of the messenger? Does our intimate knowledge of someone keep us from embracing the truth that they are bringing? See, the thing is, when you're resting on the word of God, miracles are nice, but they aren't necessary. When you're resting on the word of God, a perfect messenger is ideal, but it's not necessary. When you're resting on the word of God, see, that's all that you need. You're Faith will be firm. You will never waver. I think it's in Psalm 119. Now that I think about it. Um, in Psalm 119 verses. Uh, let's see if I could find it. If not, then just trust me. It's in Psalm 119. Where. The psalmist writes, those who know your law has great peace. Nothing causes them to stumble. Those who rest on the word of God. All Jesus needed to bring to the Samaritans was the message. And they came to faith. The royal official believed on the word that Jesus brought. Don't forget what, again, that, that key passage in this entire book is, in my opinion, John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written. We have the word. You don't need anything else. I know it's not fanciful. I know it's not cool. I know it maybe doesn't, you know, get, you know, maintain the attention of, you know, if you have a short attention span. But, man, it works. It's firm. You will not waver. There will not be stumbling blocks. We have the gospel. We have the word. So, I guess my final plea or encouragement would be, let's not, let's not go the way of the Israelites of old, where they needed the signs, they needed the miracles. But as a result, they had no faith. Let's rest on the word of God. That is what he's left us with. He didn't leave us with miracles or signs. He left us with his word. This is enough. So let's rest in that. Let's read that. Let's hear that. Let's believe in that. If we do that, not only will our faith be strong and firm our belief will be strong and firm but we'll have great peace nothing will cause us to stumble 
and we can continue to walk in the ways of God without wavering, without having these spiritual ups and downs. So with that being said, let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.